Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We will spend most of our time in this text this evening as we continue our study on the topic of the Christian mind. And this evening our study is entitled, Knowledge Puffs Up. Knowledge Puffs Up. And that language is so familiar for various reasons that you probably know instantly that that statement is taken from a translation of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians, specifically 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want to begin by reading this chapter to set the context for our study of knowledge as it relates to love. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their consciences when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. As we read in verse 1 of this chapter, knowledge puffs up, knowledge makes arrogant. This statement, of course, has been taken by many as a diatribe against doctrine. And even pulling back further from that, it's related to a broader movement that we can call anti-intellectualism. Anti-intellectualism. What is anti-intellectualism? If we define that, it would be generally defined this way. It is opposing or hostile to intellectuals or to an intellectual view or approach. In other words, anti-intellectualism is a movement, not just in religious ideas, but in terms of the world at large, anti-intellectualism is this idea that the intellect is inherently harmful. Something is wrong with it. It will not give you an accurate understanding of truth, and so there is hostility or opposition to the use of the mind as the instrument through which we are to understand truth. Around 40 years ago, 
R.C. Sproul wrote an article for Christianity Today, and in that article, which is entitled, Burning Hearts Are Not Nourished by Empty Heads, he gives this assessment of the anti-intellectualism of Western civilization. He wrote this, We live in what may be the most anti-intellectual period in the history of Western civilization. We are not necessarily anti-academic, anti-technological, or anti-scientific. The accent is against the intellect itself. Secular culture has embraced a kind of impressionism that threatens to turn our brains into mush. And the evangelical world has followed suit, developing an allergy to all things intellectual. As I said... R.C. Sproul wrote that 40 years ago, and that assessment of Western civilization as being anti-intellectual has only intensified in the past 40 years. In fact, if you would consider what is taking place in our society today, though there are claims to being scientific, it is far from it. Take, for example, a statement or a a headline, a, a, a news article found in a on a website called Healthline, related to the issue of sexuality. And this this little snippet that I have here indicates how anti-intellectual our Western civilization has become. The article title is called, Can Men Get Pregnant? You wonder why people are even asking that question, but that just testifies to the anti-intellectual world in which we live. It's subtitled, Is It Possible? And the answer goes as follows. And remember, this is a major health internet site that purports to give sound medical advice. And this is what it says. Yes, it's possible for men to become pregnant and give birth to children of their own. In fact, it's probably a lot more common than you may think. In order to explain we'll need to break down some common misconceptions about how we understand the term man. Now, some of you are probably thinking, I just thought that I ate too much over the last couple of months. Whereas, according to some of the most renowned medical associations and scientific communities, they would affirm that statement. It is not based on science, It is not based on some new thing that has been found in chromosomes or hormones. This is all an ideology. And we see it intensifying in our days as ideology is taking over medicine, the scientific community, and so on and so forth. Again, as Sproul said, it's not that man in Western civilization is anti-science. It is, however, that he is anti-intellectual. Now that has not just marked the world at large, and Western civilization in particular. It, as Sproul said, has infiltrated the church. The church has followed suit. Writing a little bit more recently, Don Haddleton wrote this. In evangelicalism, there is a growing trend toward frivolity and superficiality affecting Christian life, prayer, witness, evangelism, and worship, easy believism, user-friendlyism, and feel-goodism are taking over the church's life and 
witness. Indeed, that is what marks many today. If you look at statistics and polls that come out from the United States related to the evangelical church, more and more are claiming no longer to be affiliated with any formal understanding of doctrine, of teaching, of a confession. Instead, they are embracing their own spirituality. There is an absence of study. There is animosity to deep thinking. There is hostility to discernment. Indeed, there is the abdication of truth and any kind of objective level that combined with a growing biblical illiteracy leads to this kind of very severe anti-intellectualism. Well, how do we define anti-intellectualism in the church? Christian anti-intellectualism. How do we define it? And I would say in the words of Os Guinness that we could define it this way. It is a disposition to discount the importance of truth and the life of the mind. Christian anti-intellectualism in particular is dismissive of the importance of doctrine. It's dismissive of doctrine. It's dismissive of propositional truths. It's dismissive of the idea that the Christian faith can be expressed and described and explained using propositions, using words, using truth statements and affirmations and denials. And this kind of anti-intellectualism is precipitated by various causes. For some, it's just carelessness. In particular, among men, there's just a, a, an apathy toward doctrine, toward anything that requires the use of the mind. After all, many will say, I use my mind all day at work. Why should I have to use it with respect to my worship? Carelessness. For others, it comes out of conviction. It comes out of a, a, out of a, a deep-felt a conviction that somehow the mind is what takes away from Christianity. It takes away from walking by faith. It takes away from walking by the Spirit. The mind is the enemy, and you need to learn how to live the Christian life by your feelings, and that for them is a very strong conviction. You look at the kind of music being produced by Hillsong and Bethel Music, and it is filled with anti-intellectualism sentimentalism, everything that is being produced is somehow coming from what is intuitive and what a person feels and appeals to their feelings. Sometimes this anti-intellectualism comes from disillusionment. It comes from disillusionment. It, It comes from exposure to Christians who do preach doctrine, Christians who do talk about truth, Christians who do emphasize the study of the Bible, but as they interacted with them, there was the absence of love and warmth. And as a result, they have swung the pendulum in the other direction and now discount that and have as their disillusionment about Christianity that Christianity can't be that. It it, it has to be the opposite. It, It has to be just that place where, well, I'll be accepted and, 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 and we'll have warm communion together. Certainly some will even turn to the Scriptures. And they'll even seek to justify an anti-intellectualism from the Scriptures. 
For example, they'll turn to a text like Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 17 to 18, where Solomon writes this, And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realized that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Or look at Luke chapter 10, verse 21, where Jesus says, after the disciples, the 70 disciples have returned, after he commissioned them to ministry, they return with reports of what they were able to accomplish in his name. And as they give these reports, Jesus responds and says this, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. You look at a text like 1 Corinthians 1.20, which emphasizes that same idea, where Paul asks, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And certainly there in the context of 1 Corinthians 1, Paul is emphasizing how God is pleased, he's glorified by choosing those at the bottom rungs of society to grant them eternal life and to conform them to the image of his son. And that leads to this idea, therefore, because that's God's way of showing his power and his wisdom that he does this to the unintelligent. He does this to the foolish of the world, that therefore, intelligence, intellectual thinking, knowledge is somehow obstructive to growth in faith. And of course, they turn to a text like 1 Corinthians 8, which we read already, and especially the first three verses where Paul says this, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we have all knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogance, but love edifies. This is the go-to proof text for anyone who would seek to, to, to justify an anti-intellectual position. We don't need knowledge. We don't need to study doctrine. It certainly doesn't need to be a priority. Let's sing together. Let's get active together in social activity. Let's, let's get involved in the community and engage. Let's, let's, in, 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 let's meet the Lord and, and engage in that experience of communion with God. But all the bookish stuff, all the doctrine stuff, reading church history, learning Greek and Hebrew, all of those things are certainly not necessary in any way to the Christian faith. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond even to their use of 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1? Is this really what Paul was teaching? What we want to do this evening is look through this text to understand why Paul says here what he does. And what we will find is that, first of all, how this verse is used in anti-intellectual circles, Christian anti-intellectuals, how this verse is used is abused. It is wrongly cited. Now, with that said, however, 
there is a very strong admonition that the Apostle Paul does give here that we cannot miss as it relates to knowledge and the Christian mind. And in our series on the Christian mind, it is so very important for us at this point to catch this admonition that Paul gives related to knowledge. What we're going to do in the time that we have is organize our thoughts as we look at this text around three observations that we can make from this text as we set it in its proper context and understand what Paul is doing here. First of all, the first is this. We will see the Corinthian confidence. The Corinthian confidence. Second, we will see the Corinthian conceit. And then third, the Corinthian confusion. Let's look at the first of these, the Corinthian confidence. Their confidence. First Corinthians 8 verse 1 begins this way. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. Now it's important that we understand what Paul is doing here because it sets the context for that statement he makes in the latter part of this verse. He begins with these words, now concerning. That indicates to us that Paul is responding to something that the, Thess- that, that the Corinthians had, had communicated to him. In fact, we can go back to chapter 7, verse 1, and we find the the same words, now concerning, which indicates that as Paul was in ministry in the city of Ephesus, during his third missionary journey, he receives from the Corinthian church a series of statements and questions that they had related to the Christian life, related to their life as regenerated pagans, no longer worshiping among the idols, but now living their lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. How does that actually look in Corinthian culture? And so back in chapter 7, for example, they ask questions about marriage. What about relationships to, to women? How, how should a man think through that? And they write the, the question to Paul, and in chapter 7, Paul gives a very lengthy response. We find the same thing here. In verse 1 of chapter 8, we find the same beginning to this chapter. Now concerning, and it indicates that Paul is going to give us a a response to a question that the Corinthians asked. We don't really know what that question was, but we know it had something to do with food sacrifice to idols, to things sacrificed to idols. Now, idols and temples... And altars were a regular part of Corinthian culture. When you would go into the city of Corinth, you would find temples everywhere, and, and you would have the continual, the, the continual activity surrounding the temples as the key places of civic life. If you were a good Corinthian, you would be active in, in this kind of worship. You would be active in providing for these temples and the priests and the priestesses and engaged in all the activity. Much of it was exceedingly horrific and vile. And part of that was to offer animals as sacrifices. So adherence to these different pagan religions would come with their animal and give it to the priest, and the priest would slaughter it at the temple, put it on the altar in front of the temple, burn it, and then take some of the meat, the cooked meat, for himself and for, the, for use in the temple, and then return the rest of the meat to the worshiper. And that 
worshiper could then either go down to the marketplace and sell the meat. He could give the meat away to anybody who is there as, as an act of, of patronage, of supporting the community, and they would often do that, arrange kind of civic feasts and festivals, and they'd provide this meat there right by the temple. Or the adherent would take it home, and he would offer a feast to his family and to his, his neighbors in his own home. That is what they would practice. And so, undoubtedly, the question related, especially as we read the rest of chapter 8, related to how Christians were to relate to this meat. And it appears that the Corinthians, having been saved out of that lifestyle, having come to the understanding that there is no other God except the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ, they realized the temples were all a farce. All the sacrificial activities, the temple rites, all of that meant absolutely nothing. And so they felt the power of this knowledge to freely partake of the meat that would be produced from the sacrifices. And so probably their question ran something like this to Paul. Paul, can we not as Christians liberally partake in the food sacrificed to the gods without any hindrances? That was probably what we can best discern as the question that prompts what Paul responds to here in chapter 8. Can we not, since we know the truth, we know reality, we have our minds around the truth about who God is, that there are no other gods. There's the one triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The one triune God who's created all things and who gives us life and for whose glory we live. They had that knowledge And they thought, why not live in light of that knowledge? Why not go and exercise our rights in light of the knowledge? But Paul doesn't directly address the issue here immediately with respect to food sacrificed idols. You could just expect on Paul's part either a yes answer or a no answer, but he doesn't do that. Instead, he launches into something that is much more important and pertinent to the Corinthian problem. Notice what he says in the middle of verse 1. He says this, we know that we all have knowledge. Paul, he does not directly respond, but instead he focuses the discussion not on a yes or no answer, but on an issue that was very dear to the Corinthians, the issue of knowledge. This term knowledge, it's the Greek word gnosis, it is used by Paul ten times in the the first letter to the Corinthians. Ten times, five times, half the amount of times that he uses it in this letter are found here in chapter 8. So obviously, this is a major theme in this whole discussion about food sacrificed idols. It's not just about meat. It's really about knowledge. It's about what you know and how you apply that knowledge. And as I said, looking back on their former pagan way of life, it appears that the Corinthians were were soundly uh, situated in a firm belief in monotheism, a firm belief that the one true God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. We can look at it, for example, in in verse 4 
of chapter 8, Paul again addresses this issue and he says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know, again, he says that, we know that there's no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. And, and, and that idea carries through to the end of verse 6. And it, it, it is an echo of that great Shema text of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, which is a fundamental pillar of, of a true God worshiper. There is no other God but the Lord, Yahweh. And it appears that the Corinthians had no problem with that. At least those that Paul, whom Paul addresses here, they had no problem with that. But here's the issue, as we're going to see. And even as it comes out, just in a slight nuance here, the Corinthians prided themselves in having achieved this knowledge. And so that's why Paul says, we know that we all have knowledge. They prided themselves in that they had come to acquire such knowledge, that they were now in the know. And Paul is now picking up on that. And he's stating this to begin to admonish them. And it's probable here that what Paul is doing is, is he's referring to their knowledge and he's throwing in the, 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 the term all there to emphasize this. Corinthians, listen, you're not the only ones who know. You're not the only ones who have knowledge. We all do. In fact, if we look earlier in the letter, for example, to chapter 2, we read how Paul says that all who are spiritual, all who have been regenerated, all who have been made new by Christ, they have been given spiritual insight. And so Paul, when he says we all have knowledge, he begins to focus on a problem, and the problem was the Corinthian confidence, that they themselves had this special access to knowledge. They themselves had achieved knowledge. They had come to know, and they prided themselves in that. That was their confidence. How does Paul respond? That's what leads us now to the last part of verse 1 and the Corinthian conceit. The Corinthian conceit. He says this, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. To settle the question about eating food sacrificed to idols, the Corinthians believed that all they needed to do was to appeal to their knowledge. They had arrived. They had come to know. They had acquired knowledge. And the problem with the Corinthians in in dealing with this issue of meat sacrificed to idols was that they believed all they needed to do in solving that problem of whether you can eat meat sacrificed to idols or not, all it was was an appeal to their Knowledge. Knowledge alone was enough to decide their ethical behavior. That's what the Corinthians believed. And so Paul says this this kind of knowledge, this kind of knowledge that exists by itself, this knowledge makes arrogant. Literally, the idea here is to inflate. You can think of it as a hot air balloon. And the knowledge, when it is by itself, is like the hot air that enters the balloon to inflate it. But figuratively speaking, as Paul uses it here, 
It, it refers to causing one to have an exaggerated self-conception. A high view of self. That's what the Corinthians were guilty of. That's their conceit. And so Paul says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Now notice how he emphasizes the two different outcomes. He says, on the one hand, you have, you have knowledge, and on the other hand, you have love. These two things are standing at this moment for this argument. These two things are standing in, in, in contradistinction to each other because of what they produce. What is it that they produce? The one produces arrogance, it puffs up. The other one produces edification. Now the word for love that is used here is the great word agape. Agape love. Now agape love is not only a word that is used to refer to the love of the father for the son or the love of the son for the father or for the love of God for us. Agape is also a term that was used to refer to love even among uh, horizontally among human beings. But what is, what, is, what is at the heart of this idea of agape love is that it, it has an other-oriented behavior. Agape love is known as having this quality of warm regard for and interest in another. It is the idea of the willing and joyful giving of oneself for the benefit of another. That's agape. The willing giving of oneself... For the benefit of, of, of another, expecting nothing in return, not wanting any kind of quid pro quo. It's just, I, I just want to invest myself for the good of another. That's agape love. And Paul says this kind of love results in edification. It results in edification. It edifies. Now, what's interesting here is that both of these verbs, the verb to, to make arrogant, and then the verb to edify, both have to do with making something bigger. Both have to do with building something. But the first verb that is attached to knowledge has to do with making oneself bigger, inflating oneself own self-conception. The verb of the second half of this statement, the verb related to love, has to do with building up, but it has to do with building someone else up. It was used to refer to the building of buildings, but in figurative terms, it was used to describe the improvement of another person's ability to live and function responsibly and successfully, to edify, to help them live the right way, to build them up, to invest so that they would experience joy so that they would experience progress in their faith. That's what it means to edify. But this is exactly where the, the Corinthians were lacking. Remember, in that question about whether to go and eat meat that had been consecrated to the god Zeus or the god Aphrodite or whoever, in answering that question, can you go eat that meat? The Corinthians believed all they needed was that simple Shema. There's no God but Yahweh. But Paul points here and says if that knowledge operates in isolation, it leads to abuse. Instead, he points to love and shows how that decision about whether to go and eat meat 
sacrifice to idols. That decision to make an to, to make an ethical conclusion about how to live and act, how to exercise your rights in relationship to others, it must have love as part of that process. It's only in the expression of love that a true answer will be found in response to those ethical questions. John Chrysostom said it well when he said this, when knowledge is without love, it lifts men up to absolute arrogance. When knowledge is without love, it lifts men up to absolute arrogance. You see, knowledge, as we're going to study yet, is essential. And Paul, as he works through chapter 8, deals with a lot of doctrine. There is profound doctrine in this very chapter. Paul is not, does not have antipathy to doctrine. But what Paul has antipathy toward is doctrine or knowledge that is not mixed with love. In fact, look at what it was doing to the Corinthians. In verses 11 and 12, we read of what this loveless knowledge was doing, and the Corinthians were ambivalent. Notice what Paul says. Verse 11 and 12, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Through your knowledge, through what all you know, all the doctrines, you know the great Shema. You know that there is no such thing as another God. There's no such thing as an idol. It's all empty, foolish, chaff. But apart from love, what are you doing with that knowledge? You're ruining the weak. You're sinning against the brethren for whom Christ died. So, What's the problem? And, and, and you can look at it this way. When we think of the Corinthian mindset, this is how they were operating. They had their knowledge that they had achieved, that they had, that they had uh, acquired. And from that knowledge and from knowledge alone, they were making decisions about what we would say ethics. How to relate to one another. What is ethical? And all they were using to make those conclusions was knowledge. Instead, for Paul, Paul is not against knowledge, but instead Paul introduces what is a very integral component of the, of the scenario, and it is this, that love must be part of the decision-making process. Love must be the foundation. It must be integral, otherwise it's not a Christian ethic. And notice the, the, the result. What happens when you leave love out of the picture and you operate solely on the basis of knowledge, on information, you can create an, a system of ethics. You can create a system of behavior, but it will be self-centered. You will look at it in terms of yourself, your rights, what's good for you as the one who knows. 
But the difference when love is mixed into that equation, when it is not just knowing but loving, then what happens is that the end result, the ethical decisions that you make, how to interact with those around you, how to interact with your neighbor, how to interact with your coworkers, your wife, your children, your parents, your teachers, the police officers, when there is love that is mixed into that equation, it leads to an other's concern, an ethics-driven by love for others, not just a preservation of self and one's rights. This is what Christian thinking is. This is what makes Christian thinking, the Christian mind, truly Christian. And, and we looked at part of this text already back in the beginning of the series. Remember Matthew chapter 22, 37 to 34, where Jesus says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Essentially, Jesus is saying that to use your mind in the way that God has designed it to function, to use your intellect, if love is not the foundation, if love is not a driving force in the use of the intellect, it is not Christian. It is not a Christian intellect. It is not Christian thinking. Because Christian thinking and the Christian use of the mind must incorporate love and use intellect, use knowledge for the building up of others. In fact, when we talk with young men and we talk about why they should work, why they shouldn't just lie on the couch, why they should be productive in society, it is not just so that they can get a paycheck and pay for their own dinner. It's not just so that they can pay for the electricity that they use and the fuel that they need in the vehicles. No, we say they must go and get work and be productive for the love of their neighbor, to, be, to bring benefit into society and not draw from it, not be dependent. It is out of love. They must use their skills, their intellect, the knowledge that they have gained for the good of others. That is a biblical ethic, one that combines love and knowledge to create an others-centered system of behavior. Well, there's one more observation that we can make, and it's found in verses 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And these are some, some challenging statements that Paul makes. And, and as you go through these two verses, you'll notice that there's a there's a complexity to Paul's writing here. There's a complexity to it. He begins in verse 2 with the first of two conditional sentences. Verse 2 and verse 3 are, are both conditional sentences. They begin with an if. Verse 2 says this, If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Well, what is Paul referring to here? Paul's emphasis here isn't on quantity of knowledge as if to say, well, you're at 42% 
And you need to increase that. You don't know yet as you need to know. You need to be at at least 70. Paul is not talking about quantity of knowledge here. He is focused on quality. The quality of knowledge. And, and what, the Thessalon- or what the Corinthians had, had, had been thinking, even in their posing of this question to Paul, is they were thinking they had already obtained knowledge. That's why Paul says, if anyone supposes, if anyone presumes, that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were presupposing that they had possessed knowledge. They had joined the, the, they had joined the category of the know-it-alls. They were in the know. But he goes on to say this, if you suppose that, and you're talking about the kind of knowledge you have, Paul then says this, he has not yet known as he ought to know. If your way of using your mind is to use it only for the benefit of yourself, to to serve your own interests, Paul says, you do not yet know as you ought to know. And that's where the Corinthians were at. And and the, the testimony that they were at that point was the fact that they were arrogant They didn't have the right kind of knowledge. They didn't yet know as they ought to know, as they must know. They didn't yet know lovingly. They did not yet know lovingly. Their knowledge was a presupposed, assumed knowledge, and it was not the kind of knowledge, not the kind of knowing that God intended. One commentator writes this, Knowledge that permits one to steamroll over the scruples of others or to harm them or the church in a way, in any way, is not Christian knowledge. Paul is not an enemy of knowledge per se, but of knowledge that is not informed by faith or directed by love, that inflates egos and wants to put itself on display and receive acclaim. But there's a second conditional clause that's used here and it's found in verse 3 and and this one is even more profound paul says this but if anyone loves god he is known by him paul again elevates love now what's interesting to note is that you would expect that paul would say if anyone knows god right if anyone knows god he is known by him But Paul is somewhat done with knowing as the Corinthians understood knowing. And he now uses the word love. If anyone loves God, if anyone truly loves God, not just knowledge about him, not just facts, not just the ability to recite the Shema, But if anyone is actually in relationship, in love to the the God of the universe, to Yahweh, Paul then says this, then he is known by him. When such love for God truly exists and is not merely supposed, it is evidence of a more profound reality. And it's important to catch that final clause that's there at the end of verse 3. Paul doesn't say if anyone loves God, he knows God. 
Paul doesn't say if anyone loves God, it means that he has studied enough. It doesn't mean that he has searched enough and acquired enough. Paul flips it on its head. And he humbles the Corinthians, as he does us, by saying this, if anyone actually does love God, you know what? It is only because God has known him. That's where the real knowledge is. To claim that you have knowledge from God, to claim that you even love God, to to claim that and to actually have that real means not that you have gone on some successful expedition and have brought truth down from heaven. You yourself have found the knowledge, you've acquired it, and you know, and therefore you love. Paul says, no, no. If you do love, if you say that you love God, Here's why. I want to tell you why. You love God not because you know. You love God because he knows you. That's the knowledge that counts. And in that final statement, Paul humbles. He humbles the Corinthians. And he puts to an end any possibility for human boasting. The knowledge that really counts is not the one that we possess. And whatever loving that we do, whatever knowing that we do, is only possible because God is the one who first knows us. One commentator says this, Therefore, what counts is not so much our knowledge of God as God's knowledge of us. That is the syntax of salvation. Now with that said, let's step back and ask ourselves, well, how do we live in light of this? How do we respond to what Paul taught to the Corinthians in response to their question? Now, we don't have to deal with the issue of food sacrifice to idols in our culture, but certainly we do deal with issues regularly pertaining to knowledge and ethics. So how do we think through The mind, how do we think through our intellect? How do we think through the process of arriving at conclusions to these thorny issues? How do we, how do we approach that? Well, first of all, remember this. Knowledge without love is tyranny. Knowledge without love is tyranny, even within Christian contexts. The loveless knowledge of the Corinthians was destroying those weaker members of the congregation. And up to that point, the, 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 the Corinthians in the know just didn't care. So what? God is one. There is no idol. No such thing. And meanwhile, the weaker, less mature, perhaps new Christians were stumbling and confused, and violating their consciences because of these know-it-alls. Knowledge without love is tyranny. It's tyranny. The Christian use of the mind must always operate upon those two great commandments, love for God and love for neighbor, especially for those in the household of faith. Otherwise, it is not Christian. Alexander Strzok writes this in his book, Leading with Love. Knowledge without love inflates the ego and deceives the mind. 
It can lead to intellectual snobbery, an attitude of mockery, and making fun of others' views, a spirit of contempt for those with lesser knowledge, and a demeaning way of dealing with people who disagree. That's the tyranny of knowledge without love. So the challenge is this. You must recognize that. And I, and I trust that through this whole series, you will grow in your pursuit of knowledge. You will want to know more. You will long to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But as you do that, never lose sight of that, that foundational principle that all of that pursuit of knowledge has to be for love's sake. Not for knowledge's sake. For love's sake. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, when he says this, the goal of our instruction is knowledge. No, that's not what he said. He said the goal of our instruction, the goal of our teaching, the goal of all our intellectual activities for the, for the instruction of the church, the goal of our instruction is love. Love for God and love for neighbor, especially love uh, for neighbor in terms of the household of faith. Always remember in your pursuit of knowledge, in your study, every time you pick up a theology book, every time you, you spend extra time in studying scripture, every time you go to a Bible study, Anytime you take a, a class at Grace Equip, any of those times, you have to always keep in mind, I'm doing this for love's sake. For love's sake. Number two, abuse does not cancel use. Abuse does not cancel use. The misuse of knowledge, as the Corinthians were engaged in, that misuse when they employed it in making ethical decisions apart from any consideration of love, that is not an argument to reject knowledge. It's not an argument to do what the Christian anti-intellectualists will do when they say, I want faith beyond belief. Just give me Jesus, no doctrine. Just, just walking by faith. Don't tell me theology, I don't need that. No, abuse does not cancel use. In confronting the error of the Corinthians, notice Paul never commands them to abandon doctrine. We've already read chapter 8, profound doctrine in there as it relates to the essence of God. Paul never says, put that aside, don't use that. Not at all. In fact, he instructs them. He uses the intellect. He engages their intellect as he corrects them. No, knowledge remains an indispensable, an indispensable ingredient for the Christian life. And the obedient expression of love will not be possible without knowledge. Our pastor, John, in a, in a very good book related to this topic called Reckless Faith, writes this, authentic faith can never bypass the mind. It cannot be irrational. Faith, after all, deals with truth. Truth is objective data to be known, studied, contemplated, and understood. All those are activities that engage the intellect. That means genuine Christianity cannot be anti intellectual. The body of truth on which our faith is based has depths that are mysterious, unfathomable to the merely human mind or inscrutable, but truth is never irrational. 
R.C. Sproul stated it this way, Christianity is an intellectual faith. This does not mean that it flirts with intellectualism or restricts sainthood to an elite group of Gnostic eggheads. But though the Word of God is not limited to intellectuals, its content is addressed to the mind. There is a primacy of the intellect in the Christian life as well as a primacy of the heart. The primacy of the intellect is with respect to order. The primacy of the heart is with respect to importance. Great statement. Number three, let us remember that ignorance never saved anyone. Related to this previous point we just discussed, let's remember ignorance never saved anyone. There's an old proverb that says this, nothing is as arrogant as ignorance. That's so true. The man who says, I don't need to I don't need to grow in my understanding. I I don't need to read. I don't need to study. There is a lot of arrogance wrapped up in that. Cotton Mather said this. He said, ignorance is the mother not of devotion, but of heresy. You see, when it comes right down to it, we cannot be saved apart from knowledge. We cannot be saved apart from the contents of the gospel, the gospel that mentions the name Jesus Christ and describes his work on the cross, we cannot be saved without an intellectual comprehension of those truths. Now, yes, that is a gift of God, but God does not bypass the intellect in gifting salvation. He employs it. He turns it on. He enables it to comprehend truth. Ignorance never saves anyone. Hosea 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. J. Gresham Machen said this. He said, the Christian religion flourishes not in the darkness, but in the light. Intellectual slothfulness is but a quack remedy for unbelief. The true remedy is consecration of intellectual power to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, number four, let's not miss that very last clause in verse three. It's ultimately not about what you know. Now, A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, which probably many of you have read, and there's many great things in, in that book, but he begins in page one, and, and, and we understand his emphasis, but he says this, what comes into your minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And we understand what he's saying. He's emphasizing that, indeed, what has the greatest influence in our lives from a human perspective, from a limited perspective, what has the greatest influence is our understanding of the character and perfections of God. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 3, if anyone loves God, it is because he is known by him. That is what is ultimately most important. One writer writes this, Paul would ascribe nothing to human acquisition. Religion, in a good sense here, religion is a bestowment, not an achievement. Our love or knowledge is a reflex 
of the divine love and knowledge directed toward us. Indeed, this is a cure for pride in knowing. When you realize that it's not your knowledge ultimately that gets you to heaven. It's not your knowledge ultimately that preserves you. It's not your knowledge ultimately that makes you who you are, that makes you effective in ministry or effective in the workplace or effective as a leader in in your home. Ultimately, what it is is the grace of God, that He knows you. That is what is most important. And the only reason why you have even just this smidgen of knowledge of God, the only reason is not because you're good inherently. It's not because you're smart and you're wise. The only reason is because he has known you first. From before the foundation of time, he decided in his counsels that he would know you. Not just know about you, not just create you and providentially determine your path in life, but to know you intimately. That's the knowledge that counts. Jay Packer put it this way. What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that He knows me. All my knowledge of Him depends on His sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates or or discourages In knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good, there is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way I am so disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. As we close tonight and take a break from the series until the beginning of January, I want to leave you with a question that is of utmost importance. Does God know you? What would you answer to that question? Does God know you? Remember what Jesus said when he described those who had great knowledge but no love, he said they would prophesy in my name, cast out demons, perform miracles. They were engaged in all kinds of social activity, feeding the hungry, ministering to the poor, visiting those in prison, and they would come to Jesus and Jesus would give them that damning statement. Away from me, I never knew you. Does God know you? 
And I want to tell you this, if you can't answer that question, if you have no basis to even formulate an answer to that question, you need to do something about it pronto. No delay. Why would you walk out the doors with the knowledge that, I don't know, not being able to answer the question, does God know me? And how is that possible? Where would I know if he knows me? How does that knowledge come to me from that he would know me? The knowledge comes from the gospel that is, that is offered to you, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son to die in your place, to take your sin upon you so that you might have his righteousness and know God and live with him eternally. That's the gospel message, and that promise is offered to you. And here's the way you answer that question. If that promise is appealing to you, if that promise is is what you want, if that promise is what you yearn for, that's what you need, it's the only solution to your status, your circumstances in life, then that is what tells you God knows you. Because he has made that gospel to a sinner like you, he has made it infinitely beautiful. Do not leave if you don't know the answer to that question. It is of ultimate importance. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your grace. When we read of the Corinthians, we do not only read of a letter of admonition and chastisement and condemnation. What we read is, uh, we read your heart to this struggling congregation. And as we read through that letter, we see ourselves. We acknowledge, even as the Corinthians expressed here in chapter 8, we acknowledge that so often we look at knowledge purely for our benefit, to benefit us, to make our lives better. And we're chastised and we're admonished by these words, but we're also encouraged. Because this was a church that your son died for. A church that you call saints. Those who have been elected and destined to become conformed the image of your son. And that gives us all the hope, gives us all the energy we need, the motivation to know that you love us. Lord, as we are convicted by these words and challenged as to the right to the right use of knowledge in our lives, we echo the words that we sang earlier today. Take my intellect and use every power as you shall choose. Do that for the good of others, for the glory of your Son, and for your joy and pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.